You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. The Fugitive, which came out in 1993 and was directed by Andrew Davis. All right, ladies and gentlemen, listen up. We have a fugitive that's been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injury, is four miles an hour. That will give you a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or dog house in this area. Checkpoints will go up at 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. It stars Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones, Joe Pantoliano, Jerome Kreb, Andreas Katsoulis, Julian Moore, and Celia Ward. The genre would be action thriller. I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. He didn't kill his wife. And he doesn't care. In The Fugitive, Harrison Ford plays Dr. Richard Kimball. And Tommy Lee Jones plays Lieutenant Gerard. They are really two perfect foils, even though they rarely share any screen time together. Gerard trying to track down Kimball is just one of those great cat-and-mouse premises, which works because you have two actors at the top of their game knowingly playing into their common personas while having us root for both of them. Now, this wouldn't always be the case for years after this film, as for me, the Harrison Ford finger of doom shtick started to grate a little bit. But it's just fun to watch Ford famously wagging that finger and to see Jones looking perpetually exasperated. And director Andrew Davis brings a lot of tactile fun to this story by filming it all on location, apparently in a very ad hoc, down-and-dirty style, which was rushed because they started actually shooting this film less than six months before its planned release date. Yep, this was one of those studio-pushed, big-budget blockbusters adapting existing IP, because this was based on the popular 60s TV show of the same name. It shouldn't have worked on paper, but it pulled through thanks to a straightforward story pulled off by various talented actors who are not afraid to improv. No, it's not the kind of film that Hollywood doesn't try to make anymore. They just don't usually make them this well. It also happens to be one of the great Chicago movies. The last two-thirds pretty much takes place in Chicago. I ended up moving to Chicago about nine years after this came out, and what was especially cool was that I didn't really have to seek out notable locations that were featured in the movie. They are just spread throughout and almost unavoidable for anyone who has lived and or worked in the city including Merchandise Mart, Daily Plaza, the Medical District, etc. You can turn yourself in. I'm not going to turn myself in. I need help. I need money. I might be crazy, but that train sounds like an L. St. Louis doesn't have an elevated train. How do you know it's an elevated train? You know, I think he's right. I lived under an L for 20 years. No, well, then you can explain the difference in the sound of an elevated train as opposed to a train that's running along the ground. You must have ears like an eagle. Play that back. I want to hear the sound of an elevated train. All right, wait a minute. Now, what cities have L's? Uh, New York's got an L. Chile. We do. 
We got help. Milwaukee's got help. Hold it right there where the lawyer says that he sounds guilty. There's bells in the background. There's a guy on a PA. I want to drop everything but the guy on the PA. Can you do that? Yeah, I'll try it. Hold on, Sam. Okay. Walter, this is Richard. Richard? Yeah, right there. Why did you run? Running or anything? What's he saying? Sound like next uh, stop. Sound like next stop. Do that again. Why did you run? Running or makes you look guilty. Next stop. Merchandise mart. Son of a bitch, our boy came home. That bell, that bell is the bell on the Well Street Bridge. It's six blocks away. I knew that was an elevated train. Oh, yeah, big dog, you're never wrong. The city of Chicago itself becomes its own distinct character, especially with so many at-the-time local actors cast in critical roles, like Jane Lynch or Ron Dean, who had made a career out of pretty much just playing gruff Chicago cops, which he plays in this movie. Beyond that, the accents are never, they never feel exaggerated nor distracting. Oh, and then there's that St. Patrick's Parade, of course. Yep, it was pretty much this film which alerted the rest of the world, myself included, to the majesty of seeing the city of Chicago dye its river green for the holiday, a sight which I have now witnessed myself many times. The film isn't wall-to-wall action, nor does it need to be. There are some fantastic set pieces, including Kimball's now legendary crash near the beginning, but we'll get back to that one a bit later. There are just some crazy good action set pieces, and yes, the film sort of blows its action wad during its first third with that and the ambulance chase. But it still works, though, as it mainly settles into a ground-based thriller with Ford and Jones anchoring it. I would say that the film's biggest weakness remains its main villains, one of whom becomes obvious just based on the casting. By this point in the early 90s, Jerome Crabb had already been consistently typecast as Euro-trash villains in literally every type of movie, from the Bond film The Living Daylights to the rom-com Crossing Delancey, even to the domestic drama The Prince of Tides, where he plays Barbara Streisand's cheating husband. So when we first see him appear as Kimball's trusted, quote, friend, Dr. Nichols, fresh off of the racquetball court with a sweater wrapped around his neck, throwing out hundreds as pocket change, as he describes them, well, we just know that he's bad news. If you want help, gentlemen, you've come to the wrong man. Richard is innocent, and you'll never find him. He's too smart. Oh, oh we're a smart guy. Yeah, yeah I mean, what about us? Last time I looked. Yeah, we're smart. We are. I mean, how smart could he be, really? Is he as smart as you are? Smarter. He just never comes off as sincere when he's talking to anyone, so that by the time we have that big reveal of Kimball figuring out that he was behind the murder, it just feels a bit anticlimactic also leading to the film's climax atop that downtown Chicago hotel, which unfortunately is the film's weakest action sequence. Crabs Nichols just comes off as a fop. And sorry, but I'm just not buying for one second that after all the impressive physical accomplishments that we've seen from Kimball up until this point, that it's this Nichols guy, of all folks, who would be able to give Kimball a run for his money in the beatdown department. The climax is fine overall, and it's gratifying to finally see Jones and Ford together in that last scene. It just drags a bit because of too much time spent trying to make Nichols seem like a genuine threat. As for the other main villain, he's actually played quite well by Andreas Katsoulis as the one-armed man. He just puts out that unique vibe of a former cop who has become domesticated, but is still eager to flex his gruff intimidation tactics just to show that he still can. Unfortunately, he's not actually given much to do in the third act, and the way that Kimball defeats him just feels even more anticlimactic. Fortunately, neither villain's resolution ends up hurting the film too much, 
as what's really driving the narrative has always been the Kimball versus Gerard show. The director clearly knew what he had with these two, Ford versus Jones, so why not just run with it? And boy, did he. The Fugitive holds up as one of the best action thrillers of the 1990s, or any decade, really. And that brings me to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. This film has a pretty solid, no-frills score from James Newton Howard, who helps keep the tension humming along through its 130-minute runtime. And I say no-frills because it's your basic orchestral synth score lacking in any real memorable, bombastic themes, but it does the job supplementing the action and suspense that's seen on screen. This is never more evident than during sequences in the second half of the film when we see the good doctor, Dr. Kimball, ingratiate his way into the local hospital to moonlight as a custodian so that he can investigate their prosthetic division to find the one-armed man which he has been looking for. We hear some synth with strings at mid-tempo, and at the very least, this helps signal that Kimball is getting closer and closer to finding his man. It kind of reminds me of music that we also used to hear during Law & Order, though in a good way. The track is called, inspiringly enough, It's Not Over Yet. The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Julianne Moore makes a pretty striking appearance during the second half of the movie as a Cook County Hospital ER doctor who notices Kimball in disguise and reports him to the police. She has nice exchanges, actually, with both Ford and Jones. In fact, one of them is probably one of the best moments in the movie when she reveals to Lieutenant Gerard that Kimball actually saved one patient's life. Just a great moment as Gerard realizes that the person he's chasing is most definitely not a killer. Now, this was pretty early in Julianne Moore's career, but she was starting to make a name for herself with memorable performances in movies like The Hand That Rocks the Cradle and Shortcuts. And apparently, her character was given an entire romantic subplot with Ford's Kimball in this movie, but it was left on the cutting room floor. Even though I can pretty much understand the futility of giving Kimball a romantic interest during this story, It probably would have just bogged the story down, even making him seem less sympathetic. Julianne Moore still brings a lot of dimension to this side character, even with minimal screen time. Me personally, I still would have loved just another scene or two with this character. Al, what's the status on that kid? Possible fractures during the state. Al, get over here. I need to fix the room. We got another head coming through. Hey, can you give us a hand here? Can you bring this kid down to observation room two? Yeah, you. Come on, help us out, okay? The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. It has to be the train-slash-bus crash near the beginning of this movie, which sets everything else in motion. Almost three decades later, after having seen this now so many times, that sequence just still blows me away. All to watch Kimball make such a daring escape, no less. You have one train bashing another train forward, which smashes into a bus. And none of these were models at the time. Still amazes me. 
Just truly impressive filmmaking all around, including some dazzling stunt work. It's the action highlight of the movie. So how could it not be the trailer moment? Kimball! Kimball, get over here! You're a doctor, do something! Unlock me! Unlock me! Yeah. Hang in there, you're gonna be okay. What the hell was that? Oh, shit! Oh, shit. Give me a hand with this man! What the hell with you? This brings me to the final category, which would be the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Upon release, this was mainly promoted as a Harrison Ford action vehicle, as he was one of the biggest movie stars in the world at the time. He was the fugitive. He was the guy we were rooting for initially. And as it turns out, he is very good in this movie even playing a protagonist who goes long stretches without any dialogue. So why is he not the MVP? Because of TLJ, Tommy Lee Jones. He steals this movie and really provides its personality. That's why. He's playing someone dogged, not always likable, and not always infallible. But it's his character who undergoes the most interesting arc in this movie. We watch him incrementally start to care and empathize with the person that he's chasing. Not only is Gerard the most quotable character, but he's also the most engaging. Through his interactions with various witnesses and or suspects, we always see those wheels turning, but still often in a way which keeps him in control of the conversation. We especially see this in a couple of later sequences when he finally encounters the one-armed man and also follows up with Dr. Nichols. It is truly a great performance. He justifiably won an Oscar for it, and this movie simply does not work nearly as well without Mr. Jones. For that reason, he is your MVP. Newman. Yes, sir. What are you doing? I'm thinking. Well, think me up a cup of coffee and a chocolate donut with some of those little sprinkles on top, will you, as long as you're thinking? My rating for The Fugitive would be four and a half stars out of five. This movie is just such a fun throwback to a time when star-driven action thrillers were a common form of entertainment. And even in the context of a plethora of thrillers made in the 90s, and there were just so many, it remains one of the best thanks to top-flight performances and top-flight filmmaking. And if you're looking to watch The Fugitive, it's currently available to buy or rent on all major streaming platforms. And that ends another innocent review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema.